0: Uh, There is no standard norm. There shouldn't be a standard norm for a woman or a standard norm for a mother. So how do we break out of these shackles and these boxes? And I suppose some of the polarized discourses I get terrified by or maybe a bit unsettled by because I feel like so much work that went into feminism to break some of these boxes, we are trying to put those boundaries around us again and saying, actually, this is what I am and I don't want anybody else in. And I think...
1: I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing change makers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Dr. Pragya Agarwal is a behavioral and data scientist, author, speaker, and consultant. As a senior academic in US and UK universities, she has held the prestigious Leverholm Fellowship following a PhD in From the University of Nottingham. Pragya is a widely published freelance journalist on topics such as bias and prejudice, motherhood, gender and racial inequality, and mental health. Pragya is the author of Motherhood on the Choices of Being a Woman, a hybrid memoir and scientific analysis of women's fertility and an urgent and timely examination of how political ideas of womanhood and motherhood Constructed. Motherhood is our fifth book selection for the Good Ancestor Book Club. Pragya is also the author of Sway, Unraveling Unconscious Bias, and Wish We Knew What to Say Talking with Children About Race, a manual for parents, carers, and educators of all backgrounds and ethnicities to talk to children about race and racism. To find out more about the Good Ancestor Book Club and to join us for the discussion of motherhood, visit GoodAncestorBookClub.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm your host, Leila Saad, and today I'm speaking with the author of this incredible book, Motherhood, on the choices of being a woman, Dr. Pragya Agarwal, Welcome to the show, Pragya. We're very excited to have you and very excited to be featuring your book as our selection for the month of July.
0: Thank you so much, Leila. It's such an honor to be here.
1: It's such an honor to be in conversation with you. Your book has touched me deeply. I am a mother too, but this is the first time that I've read a book that really got me thinking about my own journey as a woman and as a mother. And I cannot wait to get into this conversation. I think that this is a conversation that is for everybody. It's not just for mothers. So I want to make that really clear up front. I think it's one that regardless of your your gender identity and regardless of your experience is really relevant. And, And what I love about it. And I think one of the reasons why I haven't read too many books about motherhood is that I feel like you're talking to me in it. Uh, And when I say that, I mean, it's very unfortunately still rare to have books about motherhood that are not centering white womanhood as the standard of womanhood and the standard of motherhood. So I'm thrilled that you wrote it. And, I, and it's, it's just it's bringing me so much to think about. So thank you.
0: Thank you. And um, I'm so glad it came across like that, because, yes, I think one of the reasons I really, really did want to write this book is that, yes, we don't see many narratives which are intersectional, which um, yes. think about people who are on the fringes, on the margins of society, who are not idealized as the norm. So I'm glad it comes across like yeah. that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're definitely going to get into all of that, um, but we're going to start with our very first question that I ask every single guest. Pragya, who are the ancestors, living or transitioned, familial or societal, who have influenced you on your journey?
0: Oh gosh, that's such a big question. I, When I think about my ancestors, of course, I think about um, the thread that runs from my grandfather and my grandparents to me. I didn't know my grandparents very well. I met my grandfather very briefly, my paternal grandfather. My maternal grandmother died when she was 14, but I I always felt like she lived through the stories from my mother, um, when uh, my mother was mm-hmm. fourteen, actually, so I never met her. So it was a huge part of her life and what shaped her. So I think I, I always listened to her stories, and she always lived through these little artifacts that my mother carried as treasured belongings and possessions that she would bring out from her box from underneath the bed, and I, mm-hmm. I felt so close to her. And I do think that they are holding my hand through some of these things my grandfather's love of books, uh, these connections that we have through our ancestors, but also societally, I think all those people who have struggled for freedom, who have fought for our freedom and our right to be and our right to exist, and all the women who have struggled for to make women not the second in secondary in society, I feel I owe so much to them because I am where I am because of so many of them. So, yeah, yeah, so many, really.
1: Oh, it's incredible. Thank you. It's interesting because motherhood is the kind of the channel through which familial lines get continued on, right? We are the, yeah, like the route through which family lines can continue. And so I, I, I think that this is such a perfect book and a, a, such a perfect topic of conversation, both for the podcast and for the book club. But this isn't your this isn't your first book. This is your third book. So I would love if before we dive into motherhood, you could tell us a little bit about your journey as a writer and some of the other books that you've written and how they led you to eventually writing this book now.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I was um, uh, I was an academic. I came over to the UK around 20 years ago as a young single parent to do my master's and Ph.D., And I write a little bit about that in this book and my previous books. And so I did my PhD and I was an academic in UK and US universities and I was working and doing my thing. And I wrote a lot of academic papers and research papers and some edited books and things. I was always interested in kind of the notion of uh, how we form a sense of the world that we live in the mental models that we form and how these different models can be aligned um so i was working a lot on technology and the bias in technology but also in the world about mm-hmm. how we talk about the places that we live in and how our mental models shaped our perception of the world and why there's so much conflict between different mental models i gave up full time academia for a number of reasons i was going through infertility uh, treatment and and all those things and and i was commissioned to write a book I was doing a lot of consultancy around bias in, and in organizations, and I was commissioned to write a book called Sway, Unraveling Unconscious Bias by Bloomsbury, at the end of 2018. So that book came out April 2020 in the UK and August in the U.S., And that book is about the science of how we form the notion of bias in our brains. What's happening in our brain? Why we are doing that? Why, evolutionarily speaking, neuroscientifically speaking, why this notion of bias is there, and how that affects our perceptions of the world and how it affects our status in society as well. These hierarchies that exist. So things like uh, sexism, racism, but also ageism and accent and all those kind of things. I wanted to discuss, and I wanted to bring. Approach bias from a very interdisciplinary perspective. I'm a parent, so I and I have now I have an older child who was born in India, and I have um, five-year-old twins who are mixed heritage. So I'm always very interested in the notion of how we speak to children about race and racism, and these things obviously came to the forefront much more deeply and really prominently after Black Lives Matter last year. So I was asked to write a book which is Wish We Knew What To Say, Talking With Children About Race, which came out in October. And it's for not just for parents or just for white parents. I didn't want it to be a manual because I'm not a parenting expert, but I wanted to bring across developmental psychology perspective in how children form a notion of prejudice and bias and why we should approach it at a very young age rather than leaving these yeah. topics till a very later age. And I suppose as I was thinking about so all, all the books are kind of linked through with about social inequities and about racial and gender inequities. And I just thought motherhood is something that really, really creates and strengthens and perpetuates these inequities, whether we choose to be a mother or not. And so which kind of led me to this book now.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. I definitely, I definitely see the link. And at the same time, so much about this book was so deeply personal and you share at the beginning where you sort of set set us up for what this book is going to be about and i love the setup of this book but you kind of you kind of think out loud with us about your thoughts around how to structure this book right it's not is it a memoir is it just a scientific analysis like what is it and where do i place myself in that right and I love that it's it's a blend of everything. I was deeply invested in hearing about your story and your journey. And I was deeply invested in, in learning about some of the historical context that I'm not aware of, the cultural context that I'm not aware of, and how they overlap each other. But as I was reading it, I was really struck by how personal, everything that you were sharing was, and how that is such a gift to us to be able to read it. But I imagine quite a journey for you to have to make, uh, to open yourself up in this way. And obviously we have boundaries, you know, you're not telling us everything of what happened, but a lot of deeply personal stuff and it it really got me thinking about my own journey as a mother and that there are many things that I went through and that we as a family went through that a lot of people don't know about um that were really hard and very traumatic um so what was that like in you making that decision to really open yourself up to us your readers in that way and how did you draw the line for yourself so that you were still able to kind of keep what's yours, yours, while also sharing what was relevant so that you could do, you know, you could serve, you could be of service to us.
0: Yeah, I think writing a memoir or something with a memoristic leaning is very hard, because you always, as you say, have to draw those lines and boundaries. First of all, I think I wanted to to have that memoristic kind of bearing because I felt like I'm writing about something so personal, motherhood, which has really shaped my life as you will find out in the book, I didn't want to be a mother. And then I became a mother for two, three children. And it has really shaped my life. And for a very long time, as I say in the book also, I I didn't talk about it. I didn't talk about my mothering journey. I didn't talk about my motherhood or my motherhood struggles or even experiences in the professional arena, because you always think that it's something domestic or is something mundane or is something who would be interested in it or is something you have to hide away otherwise you wouldn't be seen as a professional person because because That's i right. think there's a lot of motherhood bias we know penalty that exists in workplaces but then when i started writing this book i thought how can i write about motherhood without my lens without talking about my own journey and if i don't share my story how can i be honest with the readers because unless we share these stories, how do we feel like we are not alone? I didn't think that I read a lot, as you said at the start, I, I didn't read a lot of these memoirs or stories from women of color or or women who were similar to me and or even other women who were not like me but have had different varied experiences. We don't hear these varied experiences around motherhood and the mothering journey. So we start believing that If we are not experiencing the same as what we are reading or seeing, then we must be there must be something wrong with us or there must be something broken with us or that we are not the norm. And that is really I really wanted to address that because I wanted to hold out a hand to other people and say, look, I experienced this. You're not alone. This is how I felt. And I tried to be honest about it. And I think there was also a sense of trying to overcome some of the internalized shame that I also felt in some of those experiences, which I didn't talk about, because we right. accept an, these societal norms, we accept these shame and stigmas, we internalize them. And we believe that, mm. yes, we, we have to hide away because we are broken, because something is wrong with us. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to open up and say, actually, it's not our fault. It's not my fault if i am feeling like this and i wanted to talk about the societal norms but how do i do that without talking about internalization of those societal norms and tropes and narratives as well um but yes you have to always draw the line there were some things where i where i was uncomfortable a little bit talking about it because i didn't hadn't even talked to even my own mother about some of the things but, I always had a line. I always had a very strong sense of where what I can reveal and what I'm going to reveal. First of all, I wanted to protect my children and my family because yes. they're going to read it one day and there was not anything in it that they didn't know or they won't know one day. And I really wanted to make sure that they are protected in that way as well. But I still wanted to make sure that I lay out that this is my story. it's nobody else's story. I'm not speaking for my partner, for my children, for anybody else in this story. And yes, as we say, people have different perspectives on the same situation, but this is my perspective, my story, my situation. And yes, I had very clear lines. I did edit out quite a few things that I wasn't comfortable with. And I included things that I think people should talk about.
1: In sort of parsing out this is mine and I'm not going to share it with anyone or this is my family's and it doesn't deserve to be, it doesn't, it's not going to be shared publicly. And this is what I will share. And in writing the book with that kind of clarity, when you got to the end of the process of writing the book, where did it leave you having gone through that self-reflective journey? How did you feel on the other side and what maybe were some shifts that happened for you that were maybe expected, maybe unexpected? I think on one hand, I felt quite liberated in a way
0: because I've written it. I was going to put it out in the world. I was going to share it, talk about it openly. I felt free of this kind of weight that I was carrying. Maybe sometimes Mm -hmm. we carry things as a weight and because we are not sharing things with people. But I also felt scared and terrified of some personal details and intimate experiences being out in the world. And I felt really terrified at certain stages and i had conversations with my editor about whether i should really include this or not and they and they were very supportive they were like whatever you want wherever you are comfortable with so i took some stuff out at certain stages i kept going back to it and reflecting on how i feel today and how i would feel maybe in 5 years time you know i might feel okay about this being out in the in the world 5 years time but maybe i won't be okay about putting it out in five years. And what if my children read it, Small ch- smaller children read it in five years time? Right. I really thought about it quite a lot. It was a really big process. And that's why I also weighed it up with scientific data and analysis at every stage, because yes. I was going to use my memoir as a backbone rather than make it into a, just a memoir.
1: That's right. Yeah. No, it it absolutely is. And thank you for sharing that. And I wanted to kind of ask you that question because I think that, and you say this at the beginning of the book, when you're talking about like who... Who should write a memoir, basically, right? And the the conversation that we have with ourselves, like, oh, my life isn't so interesting. Like, who's going to care to hear about this? But oftentimes, what we deem as mundane, quote unquote, is not mundane at all, and it's and it's actually very resonant with different people's experience, and that they need to hear. It from us so that they feel safe enough and comfortable enough to also say that was also my experience or it reminds me of this other experience I had and it encourages more of us to speak the truth and at the same time it's really scary when I think about being a good ancestor and I see you as a, as a literary good ancestor is that it's not that you have no fear and you're just like, Oh, I'm going to share all of this stuff about myself. Right. And it's, and it's fine. It's like, it's a very deliberate choice and it's still on the other side of it still have those niggling thoughts. Did I make the right choice? Is this correct? Did I do the right thing? And at the end of the day, I think what matters above everything else is that you did something and that in Reading and and I can just say from my own experiences again, in reading this book, it has brought me, it is bringing me so much, so many layers of myself, to be able to investigate further what it means to me, Layla, to be a woman, what it means to me, Layla, to be a mother, what it means for me as I'm raising my children, one boy, one girl, right, and and how their experiences are different, but also I have to make sure that, you know, I'm not passing along biases to them as well. There's just so much in it. And, and it, and it's why it's, it's so important that whatever your field, writing, researching, whatever it is that people show up and share. Um, So I just want to say, thank you. Thank you for that.
0: Thank you so much. Yes. I think all that you've said, I think is so, so important um, we are overcoming our fear. We are not unafraid, but it's about wh- how we overcome that fear and why we write things. I think we write things so that people can see themselves in it as well and and become unafraid maybe of saying out loud things that they've been afraid yeah. about. Um, somebody just posted on Twitter about how reading this book, not as a mother, had made them feel so seen and made them feel so hurt mm. for the first time. And they're not a mother. They didn't want to be a mother, but they, they felt that they would never read a book with a title like that. But then they read it and they, they've they had all these feelings th- that have emerged. And I think that is such a strong response to something, a piece of writing, because I think piece of writing yeah. should make us think and maybe change things in a little way as well as you Absolutely. well know. So.
1: Absolutely. So I, I've talked a number of times about the intro to the book, and I and I want to pick out something else that I felt was really powerful in this intro, and then it's sort of threaded throughout. So we already talked about the fact that it's it we don't often see it's not the sort of mainstream thing to see a book about motherhood that centers people of color, but not only that, you also speak about at the outset the fact that being a woman is also not a one-dimensional thing. And being somebody who births, you know, gives birth into life is not also, you don't only have to be a woman to do that. And so you speak about that and the fact that there are all kinds of people of all genders who are experiencing motherhood or not motherhood in different ways. But at the same time that you were really clear that that is not your experience to write about because it's not your lived experience. And also, and I felt like this was so key, that you didn't just want to say things just to say them because that felt very tokenistic and performative. And then throughout the book, what you point out, I think almost in every chapter and every main thing that you you talk about is the fact that we also need to bear in mind the experiences of trans women, trans men, non-binary, gender non-conforming people, but that there's also such a dearth of research. There's no, there is no research that's being done. There is, there is very little material from which we can draw from to include in. So I want to ask you about sort of that that part of the book, that the way that you were trying to tell your story speak to the research that exists, but also not make anyone else feel excluded from this conversation. And also draw, it just, it felt like it was drawing attention to me again and again to know, yes, there are these certain areas where you experience being oppressed or being marginalized, but there are other areas that you are very, very privileged and that even a book like this still really centers me because I'm cisgendered and heterosexual. So can you talk to us about how you went about kind of forming your thoughts around that and how you wanted to make sure that everyone was seen as much as possible in the book.
0: I think I've thought a lot about what being a woman means. I grew up in a very patriarchal society where is this notion of what a girl, what a woman is, and how a girl or a woman is supposed to act or behave or what is expected from them is laid out from birth, basically. And so I've thought a lot about what being a woman means and then writing this book i was thinking more about what being a woman means what being a mother means and i know we've had we have such a polarized debate and discourse around it at the moment that it's very difficult to create some kind of meaningful well informed discussion around it but what i wanted to do in this book is also not just say if i had centered just my experience and said i am so oppressed and i am so i face so many biases and prejudices And so that's why I'm writing this book, then that that means I'm just centering my experience again and not thinking about the intersectionality of experiences and identities. And for me, that is really, really important because until we think of that, how can we know that actually we face biases and oppressions, but we also carry privileges while some other people do not, might not have the same privileges? And for me, that has always been very important, and something I want to pass on to my children as well. That they have to be aware of the biases they might face because of their identities, but they also have to be aware of the privileges that they have because of their status in life and in society, so that they can be allies. They they can be good supporters of other people. They can uplift other people who don't have the same privileges. And in doing, in writing this book, I was thinking so much about as a person of color, as a woman of color, being on the fringes or marginalized in a lot of discourses. But there are other Mm. people who are even further marginalized, who do not even have, who are not even part of the discourse, who do not even, the discourse doesn't even consider them as important. And I think for me, that was really, really important to bring across that, look, yes, I am not the center of the discourse. I don't have an idealized body shape or body, which is considered an idolized woman in many debates and discourses and narratives in our society, but there are many others. And so it's about the bo- which bodies are considered the norm and which bodies are not considered the norm was also one of the things that I wanted to think about. Yes, I didn't want it to be tokenistic. I can't, I don't want to speak for other people. I don't want to speak for people who often don't even have the voice because I shouldn't be the one speaking for them. They should have a platform. They should have a voice to speak. And we need to do that. We need to create space for people who don't have a voice. So in doing so, in writing this book, I was hoping that while I was creating space for maybe women of color to talk about their motherhood, mothering experiences, by bringing and highlighting some of the other, other demographics and other groups and communities who are marginalized and the prejudices they face, I could create a space where they could have a voice and where they might become part of the discourse as well. I spoke to quite a few Mm. people, but still not enough. I don't want to... You say something,
1: you said something in there, like, uh, you know, even if I spoke with like 100 people who are, who belong to, you know, the LGBTQI community, it's still not enough, right? Because each person's experience is their experience. And the, and in the same way that we as women of color don't want to be made a monolith by white people, we should also not be making other people a monolith as well. So I just, I felt that that was, it was just, a, it was a real masterclass for me in really understanding how do I write about my experiences and talk about myself while not excluding other people, but also not trying to speak for them because their experiences are vastly different to mine. And it is not my place to do that. My place is to make space for them.
0: Yes, exactly. And I yeah. and I may, I may try and make it very clear that this book and the terminology I use and the way I write about things is through my lens, because this is my lived experience. This is my body. This is my embodied experience in the world. And we make sense of the space and the world around us through our bodies and the shape it takes and the space it takes and the way we interact with other people and they interact with us. And that's how we form a sense of our lived experiences. So, yes, it is through that lens. But in doing so, there are other narratives that we need to consider as well. If we really want to have an honest conversation about womanhood and motherhood. And we need to include, do more research studies, more scientific studies, more data needs to be and collected.
1: It, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. being And it, so it really got me thinking about, okay, so why aren't there the studies, right? It's that people who hold those identities are probably being excluded from being in those spaces where they can be funded, where they can be, where they can receive their education, everything. It's It's not just, it's not that outright exclusion. It's the ways that they're cut off in the same ways that we are cut off from even being in those spaces to even having our voices heard. Um, so it's yeah, its brilliant. Thank you so much for including that. Pragya, okay. So you talk in the book about the, the idea of paradoxes, right? And you talk again about that at the beginning. And I'm like, oh, I wonder why she's talking about this. Like, what is a paradox, right? And the idea of choice, but you don't really have a choice. And then as I'm reading the book, I'm like, oh, okay, I see it. I see it again and again and again. The ways in which multiple truths exist at the same time and how we think we know what something is and then there are other layers to it and it really gets you thinking about am i free to make a choice when i live in a cultural context of what it means to be a woman or what it means to be a mother am i is this really what i want or is this what i think i should want because it's what's being reinforced to me again and again and again so it was kind of mind-boggling and i kind of i feel like with the cover it's a beautiful cover by the way but it kind of it really reflected to me the fact that we are, are whole, we are whole inherently, but what is being reflected to us again and again is this idea of our brokenness and our not enoughness and us not knowing what's best for us. And so getting, having society set up in such a way that it's making the choices for us even though we think that we have choices. So I, I want to start with, first of all, just that as a general question, How is writing that for you? And was it kind of mind bendy for you trying to find your way through of like, what is it that I am actually trying to say here when there are so many layers to it? What is it that I'm actually trying to get across?
0: It is. It is a bit, because how do we write precisely about ambivalence? That is a question that I kept coming back to. How do I write? How can I use precise language and write in a way that is normative, that is considered normative and that we are expected to write, that is considered good writing about things that are not very clear, you know, that not as clear as we think they are. And and it was really, it it was trying to find the words, it was trying to find the my way to it as well, in a way. So there were multiple drafts and I wrote quite a lot and then cut down and trying to find always my route through this maze. And because I was also reflecting on the choices, as you say, of that I made and whether I made these choices because I really wanted to make these choices or whether I thought I should make these choices because they were the right choices. And and what do I think about these choices? And And I think we can't talk about choices or ambivalence in a very precise manner, without considering the different frameworks of context that we operate in. And I think that's why the notion of paradox, because there's always this. Yes. But there's also the paradox of how, a constant paradox of this push and pull of why we are idealizing certain things,
1: but also stigmatizing them at the same time. At the same time, right, right, right. So let's let's start talking about this. So you start off the book, actually not talking about motherhood, but talking about what it meant to be a girl in the context of, you know, the place where you were born and grew up, the family that you, you know, your parents, your the, your immediate family, and the fact that your mother herself had gone through a number of miscarriages before you, you, you know, yourself, before you were born. And that, as you mentioned earlier, because of the society that you lived in, giving birth to a son was the first thing that was desired, and you were not a son. And that that impacted you and your relationship with your parents and how I was really struck at one point in the book, you talked about the fact that you were just like, you would say, I'm a boy, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. But at the same time, in the back of your mind, you knew girlhood is coming, right? A period is eventually coming. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? And as I read it, I thought about how I, when I was, so I'm the eldest, I have two younger brothers. When I was young, I really rejected skirts, dresses, did not like them. They felt very restrictive. I couldn't run around. And I felt like if you wear something like this, you're just supposed to sit down, right? Like you're not supposed to do anything else. So I rejected it. Now as an adult, I love skirts. I love dresses, but I see the same thing with my daughter. So she's also the firstborn eldest. And she went from just being the most Disney princess girl you've ever, which wasn't me, that was all her, just the most Disney princess girl you've ever seen, to being very much just won't wear skirts, won't wear dresses. And I see her rejecting these ideas of being feminine in the same way that I did. And I really idealized my father. I remember when I was young as well and really rejected becoming the thing that was my gender, which was my mother. So when I read when I read yours, I was like, "Oh, it's not just me <laughs> that did that. It's also not just my daughter. Pragya did it as well. and i I sense it's probably a, it's it's more common than we think it is. Um, so tell us about about that.
0: It's really interesting to hear your experience. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, I'm glad that it wasn't just me either, <laughs> but yeah, i think I think we talk about being a woman and we talk about what being a woman means. But I wanted to start from the very start because now I'm seeing my children grow up, my smaller children grow up. I also saw my older daughter grow up. And we have to think about how these ideas are shaped from the moment they're born, really, you know, how how they are thinking and why they're becoming the way they are. We talk a lot about girls are supposed to be like that and boys are supposed to be like that. And, and I reject some of those ideas of that girls' brains and boys' brains are different. And I reject these ideas mm-hmm. because I believe that there's a lot of socialization that goes on, these kind of trappings of what is feminine and what is masculine, these behaviors that are imposed on children from a young age. And if you grow up in a society where oh, you're always seeing this kind of idea that, oh, because your parents don't have a boy, they're somehow not as good as other people, or that they're going to struggle in life, or the fact that people would pity them because, oh, every time he said, oh, we are three sisters, they would look at us with pity. And and so you kind of start wondering from a young age, why is that? Why am I not good enough? You know, And what does being a what does being a boy or a man would mean in this society i always used to wonder that what if i was a boy how would i feel how would i react and maybe not as consciously and deliberately as i'm doing now but it must have been underlying some of my behaviors and some of the things that i said and did because i don't know why i was like that you know that i was just rejecting all these feminine trappings believing that they were inferior i suppose you kind of internalize these things and you think If only I could take over that persona, I would be free. I would liberate my parents from the shame that they carry for my mother or my Mm. parents for not having a boy or a son. I could be the one that they could fall back on when they're older. I would be the one who will take care of them. I don't have to get married. I don't have to have children all those kind of ideas that are imposed on you. So I was rebelling against that because this is always like, oh, you could choose a career because that would be easier for you. And when you get married, it would be easier for you to do that from home while you look right. after children. So you're constantly rebelling against that. And I could see that girls were not supposed to play out on the streets. They were not supposed to behave in a certain way. There were certain lots of so- social pressures around them. So I was constantly rebelling against this kind of anything that made me look feminine or anything. Mm -hmm. But yes, I mean, we still talk about, even in this culture, we talk about how having periods is the threshold for womanhood. Now you're a woman and that kind of transition has happened. And I recently discussing that on social media, but also with a number of other people they, I, in my newsletter, I was talking about first period stories with from a number of women, and they were talking about how they were told, "Now you're a woman, and you suddenly you might be as young as ten or eleven. How do you suddenly right. go from becoming a girl to becoming a woman? How do you just yeah. kind of become that?" And that's something I wanted to talk about in this chapter.
1: And that crossing that threshold. I remember for me like the 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 prospect of it was this thing that I was really looking forward to. I wasn't scared of it. I think my daughter's scared, <laughs> but for me it was something that I was really looking forward to. But I think because I had this idea of what it meant, right? And actually it happens and you're still you're still the same person, but it also becomes this point where you become even more aware of what it means to be a woman in the world and how the world is seeing you and that there are things that you're not supposed to do anymore or judgments that are going to be made about you. And it does become very, very scary. And that that continues for the rest of our, for the rest of our lives. You talked about, so, so obviously the book is about motherhood and the choices of, or not choices of being a mother, not being a mother. Maybe the choice has been made for you or you're being denied the choice to not be a mother anymore right if pregnancy was as a result of abuse of sexual assault there's so much in there but it's it was very interesting to me to read about how we are so talking about paradoxes how we have historically and still in the modern in modern times were seen as our primary role as human beings women is to have children and to continue the, the human race. And at the same time, we're stigmatized for it. We are denied privileges for it. We are punished If it's, you know, in certain cultures and societies, if it's not, uh, you know, if it's not a male, if it doesn't happen fast enough or whatever it is. And we're supposed to hold all of that, which seems like, okay, we're really we're supposed to be really freaking powerful then. Right. Like we're. (laughs) But like that. No. Right. That's not what's happening. And that who would we be allowed to be? Who would we have the permission to be if our primary role was not seen as you are here to be mothers, to make children so that we can continue the human race.
0: Yeah, exactly. How would we be? How would we see ourselves? How would we tell our stories? What would we, what things we could do and not do? I mean, all those kind of things are really mind boggling to think about. But I, I think also talking about menstruation or periods was important that, yes, that is seen as a threshold to womanhood. And that in some ways, that is what allows us to be the people that society expects us to be, to give birth or to to we are taking on that role. But then how is that considered dirty and filled with shame right. as well? And then from that moment, yes, you talk about invisibility, I talk about invisibility, invisibility, how we are hidden, but also seen at the same time. And through history, we see that women have been so associated with their womb. If we talk about medical um, professionals in the past, we were so intrinsically, women were so intrinsically linked to their womb that even mental illness was seen as a cause of a dysfunction of the womb, which is hysteria, and which was called. And so it it was like, we are just a walking womb and nothing else, kind of, that's the feeling you get. And yes, you're judged for even if motherhood comes if you're not given um a, a, your your birth to a son, then you're not as valued or you don't have the same status. So within mothering, within motherhood, there are different hierarchies as well. So it's not just Mm -hmm. a one that you become a mother or not become a mother. Within motherhood or within not giving birth as well or not choosing to give birth or is also there these different hierarchies. And we don't often talk about that because we homogenize that. And every step of motherhood or making this choice is fraught with kind of anxiety because we have to consider so much, not just about our own bodies, but who's telling us about our bodies. Often these decisions are made for us by other people through legal frameworks that are imposed on us, through the societal norms that are imposed on us. So yes, how, how, do, we, how do we make sense of our bodies where our sexuality is stigmatized, but giving birth mm-hmm. is considered valuable, where the Mm. body that's carrying a child or not carrying a child is not seen as valuable, but the act of giving birth is considered as valuable. And within the act of giving birth also, there's all these stigmas and pressures of whether you've given birth naturally or not. And so women are supposed to bear pain and give birth a certain way to be considered valuable and not the other way. So all these there's so much pressure and guilt associated with every choice
1: we make. Absolutely. What you were just saying about, you know, the the um natural so-called natural childbirth, that part really struck me as well, as well because with my with my firstborn, I had a very early C-section because we we had some issues with her in my pregnancy and that left me like I don't want children for a long time after that she was she was born very small she was in the NICU for a really long time she then had some health issues as a result of that and it was just it was a lot so when it came to my second born my son you know I really wanted a natural birth. I felt like I had been robbed of this opportunity in my first birth. I felt like I wasn't a real mother, quote unquote, right? I think part of that comes from, I'm very, I never, I always wanted children, but didn't necessarily see myself as a very motherly kind of person. And then having this childbirth, which was very traumatizing and it being a cesarean, which wasn't what I planned for, it kind of felt more like she got evacuated out of my womb as opposed to being the idealized, homogenous idea of childbirth that we are given as this is the norm. And it was it was so striking to me that when we were going through that with my firstborn and I thought I never I did all of this preparation throughout this pregnancy and never at any point did I think I'm going to have a premature baby never at any point point. and it made me really think about how often are things like this happening but it's not what we see when we're reading books about motherhood when we're seeing adverts about motherhood it's just this seamless journey and that's not my experience um and then when it came to my second born i really was had to advocate for myself to to be able to get to have a vbac a vaginal birth after cesarean and you know, I would go from doctor to doctor to doctor and nobody wanted to do it. They would just advise against it and say, you have a cesarean, have a cesarean. And I, and it was so frustrating because I had read, you know, the science that it was okay. And it was possible to do that, but I was having doctor after doctor after doctor telling me we're going to make this choice for you. Right. And so it, I mean, thankfully in the end, I did get to, to have that experience that I wanted to have. And I kind of had to, I had to find a doctor over here and bring them to another hospital over there. But again, it was like, this is my body. Why am I not getting the choice to choose how I want this experience to be? And that happens to so many of us in so many different ways throughout the journey of of motherhood. What is it about being a woman that is judged as we don't have the same mental facilities or the ability to kind of, you know, make those decisions um, that is is happening to us. Because that's how I felt. I was like, I'm a rational person. You know, I've read, I've researched. I think it's okay to do this. And yet they're telling me no.
0: Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear that experience. And that's a common experience where women's narratives or beliefs about their own body are not trusted. But I think it's kind of laid down Mm. in our society and we don't think that that's the case, but if you look back to Greek philosophers, where they first started talking about these binary dualistic notions of gender and sex and how men are more rational and women are more emotional, they started saying that and that was laid down where emotionalities was associated with women and rationality and logic and was as, as yeah as well. absolutely mm-hmm. it's vilified because ra- emotionality is not rational and so men are rational and logical and they're supposed to make all the important decisions and women are emotional and they act on impulse and so they 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 cannot be trusted because they don't have the sense of logic behind them and that is also the dualistic the dualistic thing in narrative where Rationality versus emotionality is being laid down as well. That either you're rational or either you're emotional. It it is mm. emotions are considered not good. You, you are too much or too little or whatever. All those kind of things are associated with women. And yes, women are often seen as overreacting. And that is why women's stories in medical domain is not believed about their own bodies, about endometriosism during pregnancy, during childbirth even if they want to have a C-section or a natural uh, birth, even if they, during infertility, if you want to ask questions, you're always seen with like suspicion about why do you want to ask all these questions? Don't worry your right. little head about it because it's okay. We are making all these decisions for you. And I think so much, so much of it really frustrates me and so much of it is also deep it underlies the kind of bias in medical healthcare and and through professionals and in diagnosis and treatment, and we know that when gender and race intersect, it is even more heightened. We know that Black and Latina women get four times or five times less painkillers during childbirth. Mm. Sometimes Black women uh, die more five times more in childbirth and maternal uh, maternity. And all those kind of things. We know that this data exists because there is bias in women. It's not about women not standing up for themselves. It's because they, even if they stand up, they're not believed. So many times I've gone to the right. doctor and they've written down, she looks okay to me on mm-hmm. the records. And, and until something really bad happens, until somebody else intervenes, until I have to go to the emergency. And that's not a rare incident uh, across no. all the women. So yes I think yeah. when it comes to women's bodies they are still considered emotional and overreacting and they're not considered rational or logical we also have this kind of we know that more than 70% of medical professionals are still men right. and so men are making the important decisions and we we let them because we also have kind of a status bias because we believe that anybody in status has knows more than us and And we want them to be on our side. We don't want to threaten the men in power or in status because that's another thing we've internalized. I know from my own experience, you kind of really like act like you don't know much or you don't want to ask too many questions or you don't want to contradict what they're saying so that they will always be on your side because you're in a very vulnerable position when you go to a doctor. So, yes, I mean... It is so hard to advocate for yourself when you're in a position like that. But it is something that yeah. has to be examined from a young age, I, uh, but also through our medical textbooks, which are very gendered as well, through the training that's given mm-hmm. to medical professionals mm-hmm. as well.
1: You, you spoke about um, earlier on uh, in one of the chapters about how... How in school we learn about sex and uh, you know the sperm and the egg and fertilization and everything like that and how the the languaging that's used to describe the sperm and what the sperm is doing and the languaging used to describe the the egg and what the egg is. Is doing is very gendered, right? The the sperm is like rushing to get to the egg. It's this active energy and it's got to be the winner to get there. And the egg is just sort of passively floating, right? Just waiting for the the sperm in in shining armor, right? To come and, and do the thing that needs to happen. And you break down the science of actually how it happens and that the egg is not just passively not doing anything there and and how that then so we learn that at a very young age and that gets ingrained in us as well right as this is what male energy is this is what female energy is and that how that continu- continues a- along um it's very damaging very very damaging very
0: toxic absolutely yes yeah we start believing that our role is to be passive and calm and all these feminine stereotypes that are imposed on us like nurturing and caring and and just wait mm-hmm. Patiently, while the men are supposed to take charge and be in control, and so we start believing that, and we start internalizing these these messages as well. And it's a very toxic narrative. And I I worry for the for women who internalize these messages and who would be start believing that this is our destiny, this is our role in life yes. to be like this.
1: Right, right. It starts at such a young age, and it and it's so ingrained in ways that we don't question unless we read things like this that make us question it. Pragya, you have shared in this book your journey with infertility and I felt that that was so powerful for you to share. It again made me think about my own experiences. Um, I had my first child fairly quickly uh, and then when it came to making the choice to have my second one It took a really long time to conceive. And I remember this year long journey of what's wrong with me, what's wrong with my body, what am I not doing right? And also, again, with those messages around it's supposed to be what we are told by society is if you're not conceiving, it's because of a default within you, the woman and and that it it's heartbreaking in so many different ways, but you also layer on top of your own journey and the, the science, you also layer within that who gets to be seen as the sort of standard image of what infertility looks like and who who is encouraged to have children and who is restricted from having children. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, the more I research
0: about it, the more it it is clearer that so many of these messages are are very racially charged and uh, it's based rooted in racism. It's rooted in systemic structural inequities. It's rooted in the hierarchies that are imposed on us uh, in our society. So we we if we look at the history of that, we know that women of color, indigenous women, were often seen as hyper fertile. That they would give birth very easily. That they can have large families. That they can have children at the drop of a hat um while uh, because because of imperialism and colonialism there there was a need for white women to to reproduce so that there would be more white children or uh, children of a certain desirable characteristic and it was called the great replacement theory around that they wanted to make sure that there wasn't they the, a certain kind of people were more than other kind of people who are less desirable in society. And I think there's all this uh, hype around low birth rate that I'm seeing, which also terrifies me at the moment, is also linked to some of these narratives as well about whose low birth rate are we concerned about more than right. others. And if we look at fertility or infertility data, until very recently, it wasn't disaggregated, that much so we didn't know how many Asian or Black women or women of African Caribbean origin or in the UK I'm talking about because I had access to the data are going and getting fertility treatments because often due to social cultural pressures. We find that women don't talk about it because of community pressures, because it's still seen as stigmatized infertility in a number of societies and communities. But also, they don't get recommended for IVF for infertility treatment or medicalized interventions until much later compared to white women, because right. the doctors assume that it is going to be OK for them because women are of color are considered to be hyperfertile. So they don't have access to these treatments. In the US, we also know that most many women of color, working class women, um, are more likely to not have access to infertility treatments because they are on the lower socioeconomic strata. So they they because of insurance and because of free access not being there, they don't have access to it. So I also wanted to talk about how it's very stratified. Um, it's about how the, we some of these we talk about infertility, we talk about low birth rate, but we still don't talk about the imaginaries, those the ones, the invisibles who are not even considered as part of this discourse because they are not uh, considered to be the ones who are the desirables. You know, so I think that right. is something that we really need to talk honestly about it, about it. And I, I I think even when we talk about abortion, there is a whole racial underlying. Um, um, argument to pro-choice um, campaigners mm-hmm. as well, or pro-life camp.
1: Can you talk about that? Can you can you talk about that? Because I also found that really, um, just a really important uh, thing to understand.
0: Yeah, I think it's linked to the same thing. About um, I wrote recently wrote an article for Byline Times. If people are interested, if it's about how again it's linked to that pe- that people women linked to the great replacement theory that women white women should give birth more so that they 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 are not superseded by people of color basically and that is what underlines the pro life campaigns a lot as well i mean we have to consider that a lot of the science that we even think about science is not free of bias it's also got the the racial and racial bias underlying it in a lot of cases Eugenics has seeped into many of those, uh, many of our scientific theories. Still, especially in the medical domain, about who bear, who can bear pain more, whose skin is thicker, all those kind of myths and misconceptions are still around. That around who has bigger wombs and bigger uteruses, and who can, uh, whose yeah, as I said, all these issues are, I think, something we're not still talking about honestly, about. Infertility, I thought, was a very white middle-class narrative that still the representations Mm -hmm. we see of infertility and the discourse we have and the stories we hear are from white middle-class, centering white middle-class narrative. And women of color are often invisible in these discourses. And so the specific pressures they might feel are also not considered. The specific biases and prejudices they might encounter are also not considered.
1: So in the book as well, you talk about the fact that in addition to kind of all of these other factors, there's also decision, different decisions that women are making now based on modern life, what we live in, right? And people wanting to... Um, focus on their careers or making choices later in life about when they want to have children. And oftentimes problems with infertility that were always there weren't aren't detected until later when a person makes a choice that they want to have children. But also how we don't live in a world that supports women having it all, quote unquote. And I remember when, I remember when I had my fr- so when i had my first child i had been raised always as like you know you're you got to work hard you're going to go to university you're going to have this amazing career and all of this and also you're going to get married you're going to have children and i thought it would just all i don't know how i thought it was all going to work out right until i got pregnant and had this baby and i'm like i'm not working what you know <laughs> i can't i can't leave this child but also i felt this great sense of disappointment sort of heartbreak at the fact that oh like if I was a man I could have a child and just continue on with my career but because I'm a woman nobody prepares you for the fact that it's not going to be the same and that society itself doesn't support you being able to have it all and that this is this great again like that that paradox of I have choice but I don't you know i can have the career but when it comes to the choice of i want the children absolutely but i'm also thinking about so what's supposed to happen to my life now um can you can you talk about that and how you have seen women trying to navigate that that point in their
0: lives i mean this is a huge thing the discourse and we have to look at a global picture again i suppose when i first became pregnant i Suddenly, it was a huge shock, yes, because I realized that, oh, if I was a man, I could, yes, as you say, I could go out and do everything. But people expect me to be the one staying at home. I can't even express that I want a career, that I'm ambitious Mm -hmm. because it's considered a dirty word. How can you prioritize yourself or your career compared to your child? So again, it becomes like a binary thing. Either you love your child and you sacrifice yourself completely, or you do not, and then it's implied that you don't love your child as much. And I suppose women carry this, internalize this guilt and so there's always this motherhood guilt about i'm not doing enough i'm not prioritizing my child enough i'm i'm if i'm going out to work my child's going to suffer and there were all these media panic around oh women are be- not have women are having problems conceiving because they're prioritizing their career or the fact that their children are suffering. they are all these data that is kind of misconstrued by the media in terms of yes. how children of working mothers suffer in their lives, or they don't attain as much or achieve as much. And we look at that and this motherhood guilt, mom guilt is just heightened and just constantly drumming against our ears and thinking, you're not doing enough. You're giving yourself time. You're giving yourself space. And so all that... Was happening. And I don't think anybody really prepares you for the reality. But now I think, especially on Twitter, social media, especially during the pandemic or lockdown, I think it became easier to say I'm struggling because because mm-hmm. everybody was in the same position. Our personal and professional lives were kind of blurred, these boundaries, and everybody could see men were working from home as well. So it wasn't just, I mean, women were carrying the emotional and mental load in many families, but even in Families which are very gender equal, like in my family, you feel like you're, you're supposed, you're expected to carry more of the load because you're the woman or the right. mother. But I think it became easier for people to say, look, actually, I can't have it all. I can't manage it all. My house is not that clean. My children are having ice cream for breakfast. I'm letting them have it because I can't do it all. And I'm really angry sometimes. This notion about mm. maternal rage became... As something that we were talking about more honestly about. Yes, I get angry. I apologize and feel really awful after that. But I do get angry because I sometimes feel like I can't take it anymore. And I yeah. think during my life through when my children were really small, I even five years ago when my twins were born, I remember the health visitor came and they were constantly saying, are you working too much? Are you wor- doing your mm. own work still? And it's almost wow. like I am putting them at a disadvantage by prioritizing myself by trying to do work and always looked at my husband as like, oh, poor him, he's going out to work, but still looking after the children. And this was only five years ago. So I think we, we take on this kind of responsibility that we are supposed to be more nurturing, more caring. We are not supposed to be maternal. It's our responsibility to do everything. We are supposed to look after the children. And if you're not, we are bad mothers. And I don't think anybody could have it all if whatever have it all means, I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what does have it all mean? But I think we create this kind of idealized scenarios in our head that we will be perfect at everything we do, that we would not compromise it anything. And I did that for a very long time. I created this kind of superwoman myth around me that I will never ask for help. I will not show weakness, and I suppose that comes from being a woman of color, where you don't show failure, weakness, or yeah, failure.
1: Yeah, I think it's both. I think it's I think it's being a woman and being a woman of color and expecting to being expected to be the the one to just not show pain, not show anything, and just get on and move on with it. And that's what really struck me as I read your book. That I was like, wow, I went through a lot of stuff with my pregnancy, and I just never. I just kept it moving, right? Part of it was just trying to cope in the moment, but also that there's this expectation that, you know, it's to show that vulnerability and to really surrender to like this is what happened to me is is a sign of of weakness and that so it's it's really hard. So I'm wondering how with everything that you share in this book, and I really want to encourage people to join the book club as well, because we're going to go deeper into this book there in the discussions. And we're also going to be having an author event with Pragya where our um, book club members can ask her their questions after having read the book. So we'll definitely have a deeper discussion about this book, but I'm wondering Pragya after writing this book and all the research that you've done and just sort of examining your own personal story how are you thinking about how you talk to your own children about womanhood and motherhood in ways that really, you know, prepare them and empower them, but also the fact that we still live in a very patriarchal, racist world? And, you know, because you, sh- you share a lot of stuff in here about like ancient Greek philosophers and practitioners, but many of those th- they look different, but it's still the same as what we're in now in 2021. It just shows up differently. You know, a lot hasn't changed. So how do we talk to our children about these things so that they are prepared, so that they feel that they have a sense of agency while the world still hasn't changed for them to fully be able to, yeah, to to show up in their full selves um, in the way that they deserve to.
0: It's such a difficult thing to do, difficult path to navigate. And I'm constantly thinking about it because I want to, I'm raising them as saying, your body is your choice, you know, you choose for your bodies, you should have the ability and the autonomy and the agency to make your own choices. But as they grow older, I still have to protect them from racial bias and from um, sexism and for misogyny and all that. And when they go out in the world, they will get harassed and they might get abused or they whatever. I need to be able to protect them. So how do I talk to them that, okay, I'm telling you to be a feminist, I'm telling you to be a strong feminist, but you still cannot do some of these things because you know society looks at you like that. So I'm then I start thinking, so I'm actually limiting that this narrative that right. I'm giving the You're message. Like, Am that, I enabling? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Because I'm saying that You should think about what others think of you, but at the same time saying you should be able to make your own choices. I'm constantly thinking about it. I think I've had to, in bringing up my older child, and now I think through the years I've had to unlearn a lot of these messages that I'd internalized myself and the fact Mm. that I might be enabling some of these messages because I wanted to protect her so much from anything like what I might have faced in the world, but also... I think I just want them to know that they have the ability to respond to some of these ha- things that they might face in the that they are empowered, that they have the tools yes. and the strategies to face it and to respond to it in a sense that I maybe didn't have the, the language to be able to retort to some of these things. And then it's not their responsibility how others behave and do what they do, but they cannot internalize this shame. It is not their fault yeah. if something happens because they didn't. They didn't do anything. It's not because they were wearing a short skirt, or it's not because they went out late at night. But it's a constant fear or tre- terror that you live with about how do I navigate this very tricky path of empowering them and making them feel like their bodies are their own, but still Mm. protect them, you know?
1: Yeah. What is it that you want your readers to take away from this book, having read it? Because I'll tell you again, from just my own experience, there's, there's a lot still settling, you know, where I'm like, oh, you know, I never thought about that or just sort of mining my own memories of things that, Either I thought were normal, like what we were talking about with how the textbooks describe how you know sex happens, or I knew it was wrong at the time when it was happening. I knew it wasn't fair that, for example, I was being treated differently to my brothers, but there was no backing for me. Right? There was no there was no way for me to speak or to say it, or even if I said it, that would I would not be supported. And I'm really just sitting with all of that and really examining what that means for me and really trying to better understand how i see myself as a woman and a mother um but what is it that you would like your readers to take away from it
0: i think you've summed it perfectly <laughs> in a lot of ways i think yes i would i i would hope that they see themselves in some way that it makes them reflect on their own journey and their own experiences and make them maybe aware that it's not their fault, that it, if they ever thought, felt shame or hidden certain aspects of their stories, it wasn't their fault. I think that is something that I really want people to think and understand. Also, maybe people feel more emboldened and empowered to make choices about motherhood and about what kind of woman we want to be Uh, There is no standard norm. There shouldn't be a standard norm for a woman or a standard norm for a mother. Um, So how do we break out of these shackles and these boxes? And I suppose some of the polarized discourses I get terrified by or maybe a a bit unsettled by because I feel like so much work that went into feminism to break some of these boxes, we are trying to put those boundaries around us again and saying, actually, this is what... I am and I don't want anybody else in. And I think I really want people to also reflect on their privileges through these, this book and think that how do I create space for other people who don't have the same privileges?
1: it's oh, wonderful. Well, you are definitely... Um, your your intention and the impact are definitely matching for this book uh, for me. And I know that our our book club members are going to love this book. We cannot wait to be in conversation with you again for our private author event. And I want to encourage everyone listening to this episode. If you haven't read Motherhood, pick it up. It's an incredible book. And if you'd like to join us for discussion in the book club, you can go to goodancestorbookclub.com for more information. Praga, this was such a, a pleasure. And before I ask you our final question. I just want to say thank you once again for what you've contributed here with this incredible book. I actually can't wait to go back and read your other books, because when I first heard about you, I discovered you on Instagram and it was from your other book cover. So the the, the one about talking to children about, about race. And I was like, I, I want to, I because I'm writing a young reader's edition, right, of Me and White Supremacy. Um, so I was like, I want to read that book and I want to speak with her and then found out that you had a newer book coming out and I was like, that's that is a good topic. I really want to talk about that. And it's you're just such an incredible writer and so generous with your story. and I love I love writers who are able to layer the two, the the personal with the research and really get us thinking about, what is it that we thought we knew that we don't actually know? And if we knew, how might it empower us to think differently about ourselves and about the world? And you do that so seamlessly. So I just want to say thank you so, so much.
0: Thank you so much, Leila. This means so much. It's It's been a huge pleasure. And I've been such a such huge admiration for you for so long. And so this is like a dream thank come you. true. <laughs> thank you so much for speaking oh, with me. Thank you, for <laughs>
1: Thank you so much. So I'm gonna ask you a final question now. What does it mean to you to be a good ancestor?
0: Yeah, I think I want to create a better world for my children and for the future generations. If through my lifetime, I can create some change, even a little bit for them to inherit, inherit a more equal world, a more equitable world, where they have the freedom to express themselves I think I would have been successful to be a good ancestor.
1: Thank you, Pragya, thank you. I'm right there with you. (laughs) That's my mission too, so thank you. Thank you so much, Leila. This is Leila Saad, and you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor Podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes, patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a good ancestor.